You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Lots of good interaction in the inboxes today. 960, 960, 650, 650. A lot of you want to comment on... The prospect of a women's league or at least professional women's teams in this country that would be part of a North American league. I want to get to those texts later this hour. We have a guest coming on here momentarily, Jamie. We're going to talk some soccer, as I mentioned, from one national team to another, and it blends together at least somewhat seamlessly. We're gauging your interest in the national men's side for our our soccer team. Do you think they'll qualify for the Olympics? Or probably for the Olympics. They didn't do that. Do you think they'll qualify for the World Cup next year in Qatar or Qatar? Have we settled on a pronunciation? I don't know. That's a good question. We'll have to get on that. I hope we have to get on that. And I know we'll talk about it, but boy, is it going to be a much bigger deal in this country to talk about it if Canada's in it for the first time since 1986. It's going to be massive. The World Cup gets a ton of attention anyways, right? But if if we can actually, like, get hyped for the Canadian games and – follow the Canadian team there, it's going to be at a completely different level. People do pay attention to it all over the planet. People were talking yesterday, Cristiano Ronaldo. I'll tell you what brought a smile to my face, Jamie, seeing the name Christine Sinclair trending. Brought a smile to my face because Ronaldo, as you know, they were two late goals, two late goals for Portugal that he scored yesterday giving Portugal the victory over Ireland like Ireland's probably going oh what was we were so close we're up one nil and then Ronaldo strikes twice and and Cristiano Ronaldo yesterday became the all-time leader in international goals in men's soccer history however there were multiple accounts that tweeted out yeah Cristiano Ronaldo is the all-time leading goal scorer in soccer to which many people cracked back saying do your facts checks Get to Google. How about you do a little yeah. research? Christine Sinclair is the leading goal scorer in soccer. Thank you very much. Yeah, and there were several official accounts who were tweeting that out there. Did not go over well, particularly here in Canada. No, it certainly didn't, nor should it. And I'm glad everybody cracked back. I'm Team Sinclair. You know that, Jamie. Absolutely. John Molinero, I think, would qualify as that as well he joins us here to talk some national team soccer here this morning founder of tfc republic he is obviously covering our national men's side as well has written a good article on cbc.ca for that john thank you very much for doing this today how are you i'm good how are you guys doing we are doing very well i was happy to see that that bold wave of support for christine sinclair and the women's side of things yesterday when the cristiano ronaldo tweets were coming out how about you yeah, I mean, uh, you know, first of all, I mean, congratulations to Ronaldo for setting, you know, the men's international record. It's it's a great feat. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, people were quite right to push back. I mean, he is not the all-time leading goal scorer in international soccer. That That's a record that belongs to Christine Sinclair. That's just a factual, you know, set of facts. So there's, I think people were quite right to push back to that. And, uh, you know, I was actually in... Um, Texas covering the women's team when she actually broke the record and it was a pretty special moment so uh, yeah I think like a lot of people uh, I think we're all incredibly proud of uh, you know Christine Sinclair's scoring record and we go uh, we go the extra little mile to, to defend it. Yeah we most certainly do and we could literally fill this conversation with special moments for Christine Sinclair and her soccer career not the least of which is being a big part of that gold medal winning team last month at the Olympics, if you're John Herdman, who used to coach Christine Sinclair on the women's side, are you just showing that match maybe compressed on loop for your national men's side tonight, getting ready for this one against Honduras? 
Yeah, it's probably not a bad way to go to sort of motivate the team. I mean, she's, um, you know, John has obviously coached Christine for a very long time, and he always referenced her as, you know, as a warrior, someone who would absolutely go to the mat, you know, for Canada every time, you know, she represented Canada. It didn't matter what the circumstances were. And I think, you know, the, the men's team, you know, need a little bit of that spirit, that Christine Sinclair spirit, because this is, this is a daunting task that they're facing in the, in the final round of the CONCACAF qualifiers. They did, they've done very well to get to this point, don't get me wrong, but now they're playing, you know, very much the heavyweights of the CONCACAF region. There's no sort of Arubas or Bermudas or Dominica or Cayman Islands. They're playing, you know, Mexico, El Salvador, Panama, the United States, Honduras, Costa Rica, Jamaica. These are, you know, the top teams in the, in the, in the region. So it's a big task, and, and it's, it's going to take just, I think, beyond sort of their obvious skill on the pitch, but also a little bit of luck, and they're going to have to really, you know, fight it out. So I'll be interested to see, you know, how they manage, the, you know, the next six months. I will be as well. And boy, am I hopeful for this team. And it's obviously the best attacking side that I've ever seen with the Canadian national program in my lifetime. Let's talk about the task at hand. You're right. It's not going to be easy, but what should our expectation be given this roster? Should it be you're good enough to qualify for the World Cup next year, or should it be we hope you qualify for the World Cup next year? It's somewhere in between. I think it's, you know, you're good enough to challenge for one of the, of the top sort of three spots and maybe the, the you know, the fourth spot to get into the playoffs. Um, look, I think U.S. and Mexico are the two clear sort of heavyweights of the CONCACAF region. And I think, you know, barring an unforeseen miracle, they're going to they're going to take the first two of those automatic qualifying spots. So that leaves, you know, essentially six teams battling it out for the one automatic berth. And, you know, I think Canada has a good shot at finishing third in 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 the, in the group, but I think so does Costa Rica, and I think so does uh, you know Jamaica, and so does Honduras. So it's going to be a, a tough battle. I certainly think they're in the conversation for that sort of number three to number four slot. There's no guarantee that they're going to do it because, as I said before, this is this is something entirely different that they haven't sort of faced to get to this point. They're fa- they're facing the best teams in the region. And they're, they're doing it, you know, on the road. I mean, they've played, you know, they haven't played on home soil in whatever it is, close to two years. And, you know, mostly they've been playing their road games on, you know, in neutral, on a, on a neutral site in Florida without fans. Now they have to go to Mexico. They have to go to Central America to face very hostile crowds in very difficult situations. So it's unlike something this Canadian team, this current version of the Canadian team has, has, hasn't done before. So, this is going to be a real test of their medals. So I don't think um, I don't think a World Cup sort of berth is is automatic or sort of their their favorite. But I certainly think they should be in the conversation. Given how challenging the process can be and some of the really tough road tests they're going to have down the road, how important is this first uh, group of three matches coming up over the next week? Considering they do have a couple of home games uh, to start things off, well, with the one road game in between as well. Yeah, no, I know. I think it's massive. I think, you know, if they're going to sort of qualify for the World Cup, get, you know, in the top three or even get to the playoff spot as the fourth place team, then it's going to be on the basis of their home form. They really have to sort of take as many points as they can from, 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 from their home games. You know, and the fact that they're playing, I think it's, you know, three of their first four games at home, it's, you know, it's absolutely, it's absolutely huge. So this is an opportunity for them to get out on the back, on the, on the right foot, bank some points get some points on the table and then go from there. I think, 
you know, if they if they're dropping points against teams like Honduras and El Salvador, their first two opponents, teams who I think are going to be battling for that third spot, uh, if they drop points against them at home, then that doesn't. It's not the best way to start. I mean, you really have to sort of beat you know these teams that you're going to be in direct competition for for the number three spot. So it's absolutely vital that you know they take as many points as they can in these games at home. And with this game specifically tonight against Honduras, you know, as you're saying, John, obviously Honduras is a, a very talented team and they're going to be a challenge in this group. But with the with the talent that Canada has on its squad playing at home, should the expectation really be that Canada goes into this match tonight and dictates play and that they're the team that's on the attacking uh, foot right up right from the opening whistle? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, we saw we saw that at the Gold Cup this summer where, you know, even in the losses against you know, the United States and Mexico, um, I think you could argue that Canada were, was the better side for large stretches in those games. And it was because, you know, they were very aggressive right from the get-go on the attacking front, you know, with uh, um, you know, a lot of their key players who were just sort of went out there and really put pressure on their opponents right from the opening start uh, of kickoff. And I think that's going to be the key to success tonight is, you know, if they really sort of want to unsettle you know, the Hondurans, then it will be up to players like Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David and Tejon Buchanan, who, you know, I think has been a great addition to the team in the last couple of months. Um, they're going to have to really sort of go at the Hondurans right from the opening kickoff, put them on the back foot, maybe get an earlier goal, and force Honduras to chase the game. So I think what we saw at sort of the Gold Cup, how they came out very aggressively against opponents and didn't lie back and wait for their opponents to do something, but rather take it to their opponents and sort of dictate the pace of the game. I think that provides the roadmap to success in this opening game. So it will be interesting to see if they can pull it off. John Molinaro covers Canada and Canadian soccer at a variety of levels, has for a very long time, and he joins us here this morning on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Always the optimist. John Herdman has come out and said 21 points. That's the target at home. Seven matches, seven wins. That's what we're gunning for. What's realistic on our home soil? Yeah, I don't think it's 21 points. I mean, God bless John. I mean, he, you know, I, I think that's it's great that he, you know, sets a target like that and then wants to sort of challenge his team to take, uh, you know, a full complement of points from, from, from these home games. But, you know, 21 points out of 21 points, I mean, but, you know, that's not going to happen. Um, you know, I think, I think probably anywhere from 12 to 15 is pretty reasonable. I mean, when you look at, you know, the games against the U.S. and Mexico at home, those are going to be difficult, so that takes that you know bumps it down to 15, I guess. Yeah, so I think anywhere from 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 I would say the 12 to 14 range is is certainly doable, and I think that's sort of a reasonable expectation, and certainly something that they should be, you know, realistically be shooting for. You followed this team for a very long time. Many of our listeners have as well. So we know how Honduras plays into the tortured history of not qualifying for the World Cup in the last 35 years in this country. You go back to 2012, the country kind of got its hopes up, and we weren't even at this stage yet. It was an 8-1 shellacking. A lot of this team had nothing to do with that team. How much does the weight of history weigh on this particular side? I don't think at all, to be, if I'm perfectly honest. I mean, as, as you said, there's, you know, this team is almost completely different from that uh, side that capitulated, uh, you know, to Honduras. I think, you know, Atiba Hutchinson and, and the White House, Lucas Cavallini, I think are the only two remaining members uh, from that side. But, you know, I think John Herdman has done a, um, a very good job of sort of 
sort of talking about and really ingraining it in, in, the, in the minds of his players that, you know, what has been in the past is in the past. It's history. It doesn't matter. And he's really had them sort of focused on, you know, the task at hand in the future and what they're building, not just for, you know, this World Cup, but also in 2026 when Canada is going to ho- co-host with the U.S. and Mexico. So it's it, he's really sort of got them to sort of focus their attention on, you know, the future and forget about what's happened before. So I don't think, you know, past sort of failures really weighs on this team too much. I think this team realizes how talented it is. And it is, you know, an incredibly talented team. I can't recall a Canadian side with this much talent and genuine depth, you know, throughout the, you know, throughout the team. So I think, uh, you know, they're not terribly bothered by, you know, past failures, but instead sort of occupying their minds with, you know, the prospects for the future and the future does look bright, does look bright potentially. And you mentioned the word attention. A lot of attention will go to Alfonso Davies, Jonathan David and the like at the Mm -hmm. top of the roster. Deservedly. So we understand why that being Mm -hmm. said, how much of an asset in this particular tournament is the flexibility of the Canadian roster and that there is the ability for players to not only switch positions, but there are like parts that can come in for like parts. Oh, it's massive. I mean, especially in these in this in this sort of first month of qualifying. I mean, we mentioned before that they're playing three games, and they're playing three games in seven days. I mean, that's really, really, um, that's really sort of testing. That's going to be a real test of John's uh, John Herdman's managerial acumen and how he manages his team and rotates his squad. So the fact that he has such a deep and talented side with interchanging parts. Um, I think that bodes well for Canada. I mean, the fact that, again, playing three games in, in seven days, he's not going to be able to feel the same starting 11, uh, you know, all three times. He's going to have to sort of rotate his squad. And the fact that he can, you know, move players in and out rather comfortably, I think that's a big asset for, for Canada. I don't think it's a luxury that, you know, I would suggest teams at the bottom half of, at the, at the, of the table in this group necessarily have, certainly not teams like Jamaica and Honduras, while certainly talented, I don't think they necessarily have the depth for as Canada does. So I think that's going to be a big advantage for Canada. As you talk about the importance there, John, of squad rotation and managing the depth of the team, you know, I wanted to ask you what's going to be the most challenging aspect of this qualifying process, specifically for the manager, John Herdman? Uh, I think getting results on the road. I think, you know, historically, you know, Canada's World Cup hopes have, have died in Central America when they've had to go to places like Mexico and Honduras and El Salvador and Panama. So, I mean, this team has it's done quite well under John Herman since he took over in 2018. I think they've won 21 of 27 games. But, you know, the bulk of those victories have been against, you know, what I would call minnow nations of CONCACAF. They've only won two games against higher-ranked opponents. Um and, you know, they, none of those, uh, I think, no, none of those, uh, none of those, neither of those wins have been on the road. So to go down to Mexico, to go down to Honduras and these other countries in, El, in, in Central America, we're going to get a real sense of, of how good this team is and, and, you know, how good it can compete. You know, forget about playing in a neutral site venue or at home. I mean, if you really sort of want to advance and assert yourself in CONCACAF, then you have to win. Uh, in places like this, especially if you want to qualify for the World Cup. And, you know, we haven't seen that yet from, from, from this Canadian side because they haven't really, they haven't had a chance to play the best teams in the region on their own turf. Now they're going to have that chance and they really have to sort of take as many points as they can. So I think that's going to be the biggest challenge is getting away wins, especially, as I said, in places like Mexico and Honduras. 
we're also focused and excited about the young attacking talent on this team, but the veteran stalwart midfielder, Atiba Hutchinson, he's back. He's going to be on the squad. What role do you envision him playing through this qualification process for Canada? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question because I think he's been such a loyal servant for the Canadian national team. I mean, this is his fifth World Cup qualifying cycle. Um, you know, he's uh, got something like 80-odd 80, 80 caps, and he's only five away from tying Julian de Guzman's all-time record. So he's obviously always been there for Canada. But even at age 38, I still, I still think he has a lot to contribute. And it'll be interesting to see how he's used. I suspect, you know, he might start one of these three games, maybe the middle game against the United States against Na- in Nashville on Sunday. But other than that, I think he will, he'll largely be used off the bench because And when was the last time we were able to say this? Canada has a lot of quality options in the center of the park in midfield, whether it's Mark Anthony Kay or Stephen Eustachio or Samuel Piat. So I don't think he's necessarily a first option. I think we'll mostly see him come off the bench, but I suspect we might see him earn a start or two as well. And the subject of options, it's not being talked about for this match tonight, nor with what the U.S. faces, and probably because we focus on the North American teams more than any other, but there is this wrinkle that's thrown in with teams like the Premier League saying, we're not releasing players to go play in countries on the world red list right now. Those countries where the COVID situation is worse than a lot of other places in the world. It's an interesting wrinkle that could really challenge some of the rosters throughout the course of this tournament, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And and not just for Canada, but I mean, there's, you know, I think it poses the same problem for for the United States and for Mexico and and a lot of the other nations competing in this. And it's it's yet another sort of obstacle that, you know, teams like Canada will have to sort of uh, overcome on top of the usual sort of dance that, you know, the Canadian national team has to make with clubs whenever an international window comes up, because teams are very reluctant to release their players, especially the CONCACAF sort of teams, right? I mean, European clubs aren't all that thrilled about letting their players have to go you know, back home overseas to, to play in a World Cup qualifier uh, under the best of circumstances. And I think this just adds like one more re- sort, of, sort, of, sort of obstacle in their path. So I'm really sort of interested to see how this plays out and whether, what kind of effect, if any, it's going to have uh, you know, on the teams uh, you know, over the next six months. Agree wholeheartedly. I'm really interested to see what happens tonight on the pitch in Toronto. I think a lot of people in this country are. I think we're going to get great returns on the television product. At least that's my hope. John, thank you very much for doing this. We will do it again soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thank you. That is John Molinaro joining us here today. Didn't want to make it the bulk of the interview, but it's an interesting wrinkle that's thrown in here, Jamie. Look, there are three countries in the CONCACAF region that are currently on the red list that I just referenced. Yeah. Costa Rica, Mexico, and Panama. And basically, if you are a nation within CONCACAF that's part of this tournament and you have someone playing in the Premier League right now, well, that player, if you have to play in one of those three countries right now for one of these international matches, you're not getting that player or those players. And there are national sides appealing to yeah. to their audience saying, hey, Get on the Premier League, bang the drum, let them know that that we need our players, that it's that important. Canada doesn't find itself in that situation right now. As John just detailed, as you know, 
Two of these next three matches are going to be on home soil between now and next Wednesday. The middle one will be in the United States. Now, if we get into October and the rules are still the same and the COVID situations in those countries are still the same, it starts to become a little more of a challenge. Canada plays in Mexico, for example, next month. Yes, and it'll it's it's going to be really fascinating to see which teams actually end up hurting the most from this and which, in a weird way, end up benefiting, right, if their opponents are severely damaged by it. I know the Jamaican Football Association, Soccer Association, has been kind of outspoken on social media saying, hey, this affects a lot of our players. We need them to win. We, we have to get some sort of exemption here, but I don't know if that's going to be coming. I think this is going to be something that the CONCACAF teams just have to deal with. Yeah, by the way... We had hoped we had hoped that there was going to be a little bit of advantage for Canada when it went to Mexico next yep. month because you remember the ruling from a few months ago. Look, your fans have been doing these homophobic, homophobic chants for too long. We're imposing sanctions on you, and one of the sanctions that was imposed at the time, your first two qualifying matches in the next round, you can't have anybody there. Well, of course, just the way that it goes in international soccer and with the lack of substance in some of these rulings, that got halved. So it'll only be this first match that Mexico will host over the course of the next week that will be without fans. And they cut that down, so Canada will have to go into the Azteca with a full complement of Mexicans cheering on their home side. Yeah, which, uh, as you may have heard, is a pretty difficult place to go in and get points, uh, especially if you're a team traditionally like Canada. So uh, whatever little advantage they had gained there is gone, and man, that is just going to be a fascinating match to watch when they go down to Mexico. No, I hadn't heard that. I, that's news yeah. to me, actually, that it's difficult. That <laughs> breaking is, news. Yeah, That is breaking news. It's Scott Rintoul. It's Jamie Dodd. What defines the term when it comes to the National Hockey League? And I'm not talking contracts. I'll tell you which one I am talking about next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. <laughs> I'd like to see this too. It's Scott Rintoul and Jamie Dodd. We threw out the video. We described it as best we could. That's getting a lot of run today. Dude on yeah. rollerblades, jorts, sleeveless, mullet, getting chased or at least trailed by a police vehicle <laughs> with its lights on through the streets at night. Like, it's an incredible six-second clip. It's great. We talked about it earlier, and a lot of our listeners have come back and talked about how great it was. I got this one in, Jamie, from one of our listeners, John, who goes by JR the Sailor on Twitter. And John says this, When I was a kid growing up in Thunder Bay, my dad was a policeman. One snowy evening around Christmas, my dad came home to pick up his lunch. He got a call. Someone had stolen a skidoo. For the next 20 minutes, I watched my dad chase the skidoo through our neighborhood in his cruiser. <laughs> a skidoo chase. That is a, that's a made in Canada story right there. I love that one. All right, your plan, it seemed like it was going well, but then you went to a policeman's neighborhood. Bad turn of events, Bad. friend. You're getting chased yep. on your skidoo. That's massive. <laughs> I don't know if there's any other stories that can quite live up to that or the mulleted rollerblader going through the streets, which I am fascinated with. But if you've got one, feel free to hit us up, 960, yep. 960 or 650-650. Jamie, 24 hours ago, we had Tyson Nash in this time slot on this show, and we talked about a bunch of things. Christian Dvorak and the potential for him to land in Montreal, and we talked about 
post-career, how difficult that transition can be in reference to the J.R. Smith story and what Tyson Nash went through. And, of course, we talked about the Arizona Coyotes and where they find themselves right now. And it's a pretty familiar place, isn't it? Oh, it's a very familiar place. I mean, for the Coyotes to a certain extent, but also just for NHL teams, for sports teams in any league, right? You're doing the full teardown, the full rebuild. You've got the for sale sign out. Any good player, basically, yeah, you'll be willing to trade them if you get the right price back. And you really have to specify when it comes to this organization because when you say the Coyote situation, it's just the yes. latest one. If if I tell you Coyote <laughs> yep. situation, your first question is, oh, which one are you talking about? There's a long list that has been a tortured existence for the most part in the desert, and the league has propped it up for a very long time. Which is why, in fact, you yesterday, Jamie, asked Tyson Nash about the fans who actually remain loyal to the team in Arizona. And with everything going on with the revamping of the roster and the chaos that seems to embroil the situation, look, it was earlier this year that there was that big athletic report about a toxic workplace. And now do they have a place to play beyond next season? Are they going to work this out with Glendale? Are they going to have a temporary arena? Are they going to get something? There's all of that going on. So with all of that in mind, you asked Tyson Nash, Look, can the fans there stomach going through this again with all of this stuff going on? Here's what he had to say. I really don't. I think it's harder as a fan to sit through a mediocre team. Uh, I think that's harder than uh, than anything. You're going to drop all this money on tickets. You want to watch an Austin Matthews. You want to watch a McKinnon, a McDavid. And that's that's the bottom line. And all we've done here since at least I got here as a player was, you know, yeah, we compete. Yeah, we battle. But we always finished out of the playoffs and in that ninth, tenth spot, and then what kind of draft picks do you get? Well, you get the Kyle Turrises, you get the Martin Hansels, you get the Mikel Bodkers. That's not how you win, okay? You need the superstars of the league. We should have had a Crosby, we should have had a Taves, we should have had a Malkin, we should have had any one of them, and we didn't, we didn't get anyone. And we were kind of in a rebuild mode back then. So there are a number of things within that answer, Jamie, that we could focus on. And part of what Tyson Nash said, I agree with. I don't fully subscribe to the you've got to be really bad before you can be really good. I don't personally buy that, but I know a lot of hockey fans do. Yes, and there's there's kind of two things he's saying there. One is that part of it, right, which, okay, you have to be really bad. But he's also just saying you need that high-end talent. Right. And I think that's something that a lot more people would agree with. There's other avenues to get that high end talent. Right. It doesn't have to be first or second in the draft, but that's a fair point. And then there's also the point he makes about eventually mediocrity wears on fans just as much as being bad does. Right. And that's his bigger point there, I think. Yeah, and that's the part I want to get to because I can point to some other organizations that either have had a litany of top picks and it hasn't worked out or they got what is a superstar in this lid. Yeah, Buffalo, I'm looking at you, and it still hasn't gone their way, and now they're going to have to trade Jack Eichel out of there at some point in time. And I can look at examples where they didn't necessarily get that high-end, this guy is a franchise definer at the top of the draft. Like Carolina comes to mind for me in that respect. Hey, they got Andre Svechnikov at number two. He's a really good player, but he's not in the tier of player yet that Tyson Nash is talking about. No, exactly, right? So, of, of course, yes, you can draft. I mean, you can draft first overall and not get that type of player, right? Certainly, you can draft second or third overall. I mean, someone from Calgary texts in, hey, 
Kyle Turris was a third overall pick, and that's a fair point, right? I mean, you know, Tyson Nash is just speaking off the top of his head. But to your point, yeah, you can draft someone third overall, feel really, really good about it. They're not necessarily going to turn into that type of player for you. Right, and as you go further down the draft board, your margin for error is lesser, and you have to be better at returning draft classes than you do just about, hey, we got a no-brainer here. Sidney Crosby just fell into our laps, and that's going to be just fine. That happens every once in a while. It took Edmonton a whole bunch of cracks at it, as we all know, oh, yeah. to, to get it right at the top of the draft. And they got a couple of top three picks that have made it work better. And yet Edmonton still hasn't realized a whole lot of success. They do have something that Arizona has never had, and that is a superstar in their case to, to at least draw fans to the arena and at least have something to be excited about. And at least to give them that hope. And I guess that's the second part of the conversation, right, is – Okay, first of all, if you're going to go this route, right, where you, you tear everything down and your plan is to be bad and try to hit at the top of the draft, you know, you need a certain element of luck, not just for the lottery to go your way, right? Because even if you're the worst team in the league, that's no guarantee that you're going to be picking first overall, but you need some luck that you're going to be drafting in a Connor McDavid or Austin Matthews year, you know, rather than a Anil Yakupov year, for example, right? That's And you can't guarantee that. Now, we can look at the next couple of years coming up and say, okay, Shane Wright, and then Connor Bedard after that, you're feeling pretty good, but you still don't know. You never know. You can do everything. Okay, we were terrible. We were awful. We got the best odds in the lottery. We won the lottery, and there's still no guarantee that the player you get is actually going to move the needle for you. There are a lot of franchises out there that could complain about not getting lotto luck, a lot of them, including Calgary and Vancouver, quite frankly. Hey, we didn't get the lot of luck. We didn't get first overall. They could complain about not landing a superstar talent. Vancouver appears to have done that at number five overall. But his point about mediocrity is a really good one. And as you said, that's one to focus on here. Which are the most mediocre franchises? Because he's right. It is more difficult to convince fans to get on board with well, you sort of are close to being a playoff team, but you're never quite there, yet you're never bad enough to really invest completely in a rebuild and, and get your fans excited about that. Which are the teams in the National Hockey League that best fit that description in the last five years, last ten years, Jamie? And you make a great point, Scotty, that it's, at a certain point it's about what you can sell your fans, right? And it after you're mediocre for so long, it is easier to sell the rebuilding process than it is to continue selling, hey, you know, if, we, if things break right for us, we could be the sixth seed this year, right? Like, that's a hard pitch after a certain number of years. I did think it was really fascinating. You know, Karen and I talked about this a little bit on the show last week. The Athletic did their big annual survey of fan confidence in various NHL front offices. And the number three, the 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 front office that fans have the third most confidence in was the Detroit Red Wings, right? And obviously, partly that's based on Stevie Wise's track record and what he did in Tampa Bay as an executive. But I think it's also indicative of if you're not trying to win games, it's you can sell fans on that for a little bit, right? Because, hey, expectations are so low. We're acquiring these draft picks. We're acquiring these prospects. We don't have any bad contracts on the book. That's something that you can sell to fans. And I thought that was an interesting kind of example of doing that in Detroit. As for who are the most kind of mediocre teams in the NHL, I mean, I think a lot of our listeners in Calgary, the Flames probably jumped to mind for them, right? Because 
They haven't been on many deep playoff runs recently, but they also haven't bottomed out to the point where they're giving themselves fantastic odds in the lottery, right? I know they had the one year a few years back where they finished first in the Western Conference in the regular season. Didn't translate. They were bounced in the first round. So I get a sense just reading the text we get from Calgary in the 960-960 inbox, Scotty, that a lot of fans there are frustrated by this cycle of mediocrity, right? Of, okay, you're fine in the regular season, but you don't go deep in the playoffs, and you never have a chance to get that high-end talent in the draft because you're not picking that high. The, the Flames are a team that jumped to mind for me. And this really comes down to how expansive your definition of mediocrity is because there will be those who argue, well, hey, they finished top of the division, they made the playoffs, and they've made the playoffs on multiple occasions, whereas other teams have not. So does that qualify as mediocrity for you? Does Minnesota, for example, qualify as mediocrity for you, Jamie? This is a team that was a perennial playoff team for most of the last decade and yet wouldn't get out of the first round, wouldn't get out of the first round. Same thing over and over. So... Does the definition expand into that level where, hey, you're a playoff team, and, and that's kind of where Toronto finds itself right now. Toronto at least has the excitement of Austin Matthews and Mitch yeah. Marner and bringing in John Tavares. They've been able to sell that for a long time. Do we consider Toronto in that category now because of the playoff failures, the way that we got to with Minnesota, a team that went out and got Zach Parise and Ryan Suter and we're going to be in the playoffs every single year, but we're not going to do anything in the playoffs. Or do we reserve it for teams that finish where Tyson Nash talked about? Well, you're just missing every year. You're 10th. You're kind of in it, but you're not really in it. See, I would have Minnesota very much in there. The two teams that jumped to mind when we started kicking this topic around, Scotty, were Calgary and Minnesota for me. And yes, they've had better years than some other teams. They've been consistent playoff teams and all of that. But they've never felt like true contenders, right? And whatever you think about the Maple Leafs, I would have them in a different category because they have that crop of high-end talent. And look, you can poke holes in some of the things they do elsewhere on the roster, but there's a reason they have a lot of regular season success. And there's a reason that you can at least talk yourself into them being legitimate Stanley Cup contenders. In a way, like, I never felt in the Zach Parise and Ryan Suter era that the Wild were, oh, man, this is a team to watch out for. You know, this is one of the five or six best teams in the NHL. So, yeah, they were good for a long time. But, again, they they are the perfect team to kind of encapsulate the idea of just, yeah, middling, mediocre. You don't, you don't expect them to go in a deep run. You don't expect them to bottom out they're just kind of in the middle there well it really depends and and not depends but I guess part of this conversation is how quickly do you get there because remember when Minnesota beat Colorado in the first round and got to the second round and hey this is just the beginning knocked off Patrick was avalanche this is just the beginning but you get used to the same result time and time and time again and it gets to that definition of insanity. Are we just asking for the exact same result if we keep doing the same thing? Someone texts in with many exclamation points. Vancouver. Vancouver's interesting because Vancouver has been really bad, and the team that went to the second round game seven a couple years ago, I don't think we would call it really good, but it went to a place that gave fans a lot of hope, and obviously there was massive regression last season. They haven't had lotto luck, despite the fact that the Canucks have been really bad at times. Do you look at Vancouver? I guess if we expand it to 10 years, you have to put Vancouver in that conversation. Well, I mean, if you're picking up after the the 2011 Stanley Cup team, I guess. But, I mean, Vancouver's interesting because 
over the last 10 or 11 years, they write, they went from being really, really good, had kind of a brief stopover in the middle, and then were really, really bad. So I would put the Canucks in a slightly different conversation here because, again, I mean, what? Over the last four or five seasons, they have one of the worst records in the NHL, right? So they haven't, yeah, they had that one nice playoff run in the bubble, but by and large in recent seasons, they haven't even reached the level of mediocre, right? Like they've been a level below that. I think the fear in Vancouver is that the Canucks are headed to this kind of endless loop of mediocrity, right? If if they're not able to put enough pieces around some of the young talent that they're going to end up in that mediocre spot. But they haven't even really done that, I, I don't think. I mean, they've just been a, a bad team over the last four or five seasons. Is it more frustrating to be that or is it more frustrating to be Buffalo? Like, is it more frustrating to be a Minnesota? Marcus and Gibsons is a Minnesota fan, and he's made that very clear over his constant listenership. But he said, like, mediocrity starts with Minnesota when it comes to the National Hockey League, and that hurts me to say. Is it more frustrating to have that where you're right in that middle all of the time, or is it worse to be Buffalo, for example, where it's constantly near the bottom and it's this endless cycle of selling different hope? Buffalo has to be the most frustrating situation in the NHL, right? Like, I understand if you're a Minnesota Wild fan, and the interesting thing with the Wild, too, is until Kaprizov really broke out this year for them in his rookie year, so much of it wasn't just their record. It was like the style of play. And it just seemed like there was never anything exciting. Okay, Parise and Suter come in as big free agent ticket signings, but they're not the most exciting players. Like there was just nothing to hang your hat on and get excited about in Minnesota. So that played into it. But man, the situation in Buffalo, I, like I get it. Oh, I would rather have a chance to accrue those draft picks. But when they're just frustrating and disappointing year after year after year like that, that has to be the most frustrating situation in the NHL, I think. Trucker James sends in Leafs, Wild, Flyers, Panthers, Oilers are mediocre teams. Solid regular season success, but go nowhere in the playoffs, says Trucker James. And depending on which one we're talking about, you're selling a different level of excitement. And we mentioned that with the Leafs. The same could be said about the Oilers in recent years. And, and that's kind of the way you compare it to some of those other teams. Well, at least they have some excitement in the case of both of those Canadian franchises. Hey, they're getting some individual hardware. They've got superstars within the game. Barkov certainly qualifies as a superstar, yeah. despite the fact he hasn't gotten the recognition around the league that, that some of those others have. And I think the thing with having those superstars is that it makes it a lot easier as a fan to at least imagine the team breaking the cycle of mediocrity, right? Like, okay, it hasn't worked out around McDavid and Dreisaitl yet, but theoretically that should put us ahead of the game. And if we win a couple trades here or there, you know, if one extra draft pick hits, all of a sudden we're in business. You can convince yourself of that. It's still really difficult to do. But when you don't even have those kind of cornerstone players and your team is mediocre, then you're looking around saying, well, we're not going to draft one in the top five because we're not going to pick there. How on earth are we going to get that talent we need? I think that's the position a lot of Flames fans find themselves in. And when we threw this question out, Scotty, immediately on the 960-960 side of things, we started getting those texts, right? Unsigned. The Flames are absolutely a mediocre team and have been for a long time. The Calgary Flames are the definition of mediocrity, says another texter. That That is the, I don't want to say the overwhelming, but that is certainly a very popular school of thought in Calgary, right? That the Flames are the classic team stuck on this kind of treadmill of mediocrity. And and you look at the Calgary situation now in this offseason, what are they looking for? It's that high-end player. It's that high-end center that they need to really take that team to the next level. 
It's funny because sometimes history makes you revisit your opinion on a team. I'll give you one for example, and you tell me, listeners, whether this was just a mediocre team or if you look at it in a far more positive light. The West Coast Express era for the Vancouver Canucks, Jamie. Was that a mediocre team? That was a team that had star power, had excitement, had an exciting, fun brand of hockey. And if you watched that team, and most around the NHL did, because that was must-see television. When that line went to a city, there was a lot of excitement around it. That incarnation of the Canucks won a single playoff round it's hard to believe actually given what marcus naslin did and todd bertuzzi did and 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 brendan morrison obviously in the middle as well and they had guys like ed jovanoski like they had really exciting players and they had a lot of really good regular season teams but certainly couldn't get it done in the postseason is that a mediocre team it's it's interesting and the reason i would say it wasn't a mediocre team is because of the excitement right and there was also a certain I don't want to say expectation that they were ever considered, you know, one of the top five teams in the NHL or anything like that, but you thought they had a really good chance to go deep in the playoffs in one of those years, right? And I think that's one of the things that sets these truly mediocre teams apart, right, is even the fans don't necessarily look at it and say, oh, man, hey, if things go right, we could be a cup contender this year. Like, their their expectations aren't even there. Their expectations are, yeah, we'll probably finish seventh or eighth and lose in the first round, right? And I think that was the difference is you could at least – convince yourself about those West Coast Express teams that they were going to do more than that. The other difference I see with them is it was a relatively short time frame, right? Because a lot of what we're talking about is when the period of mediocrity stretches on and on and on. And it seems like it's no, there's no escape from it, right? The West Coast Express era was relatively short in Vancouver compared to some of the other situations we're talking about. The first three texts that come in with that question we throw out to the audience are but all goaltending related. Hey, they needed a goalie, said Robin Victoria. Yeah. Rocket and Langley, same thing. Good team. Their problem was goaltending. Another text simply says, Cluche. This one's interesting, Jamie. I bet there are 25 teams in the NHL that would claim to be the most mediocre team. There are only a few that have constant success. You've heard me harp on this again. Having success is great. Replicating success is the most difficult thing to do from an individual and team standpoint in all of sports, and that comes to a broader conversation. What do we define as success? What's success? Right. Like, were the the San Jose Sharks successful for two decades, right? A lot of people would say yes, but you know, Scotty, that a lot of fans would say no. They never won the Cup. That wasn't successful. I agree with that assessment of of what many people will say, Jamie, but I disagree. Like, San Jose was a very successful team. Yeah, I I think that's fair to say, too. When you just consider how difficult it is to be a consistently contending team for that stretch of time, not many teams are able to pull that off. So I would look at it and characterize it as a success, but especially nowadays, Scotty, where the focus is so much on championships, on rings, I think a lot of people see not, not... don't see the Sharks as a cautionary tale necessarily, but as a, yeah, okay, that's fine, but it doesn't mean anything because you never brought home the Stanley Cup. Right, and it's funny you say that, Jamie, because we are living in this area of championship or nothing. It doesn't matter unless you bring home a championship. We're living in that, and yet at the same time, as it goes on, I feel like more people are expanding their minds to have have a, a broader definition of success, that there's more of a realization of how difficult it is to win and that not all great teams do it and not all great players get theirs. And you know what? We're going to have to take it into a little bit different consideration than we did when 16 of 21 teams were qualifying. And 
and basically you had to work hard not to make the playoffs in the National Hockey League. We have a, a different definition, I think, and I think there's going to be more respect for, say, a team like the New York Islanders. Let's say that crew never gets over. They've been really good the last three years. They've been oh, yeah. tough, man. Like, it's been a successful run here. They might never win, and let's say they replicate what they've done, and they're a second-round or third-round team in most of the next two or three years. That's still a pretty successful organization, isn't it? Yeah, I would certainly characterize it as that, and I hope that that recognition is changing, right? And our definition of success is changing a little bit. Of course, the ultimate success is going to be to compete for the Stanley Cup, but yeah, there are other ways for teams to at least be deserving of recognition and respect, right? It doesn't, it, the only, it's not as if there's only one good team in the NHL every year. And we're seeing that with individual players, and you start to talk about their Hall of Fame candidacy, like goalies, for example. Roberto Luongo and Henrik Lundqvist are in this class that they're going to go into the Hall of Fame, and there's some that will, yeah. ah, they, they never won a Stanley Cup. I think we're getting away from that. We really are. We're taking a bigger body of work and, and how it relates to the field because with how difficult it is to get in the playoffs and how difficult it is to advance, there are going to be more and more great, great players and really good teams that never get that ultimate prize. Yeah, it's not a six-team league anymore <laughs> or even a 21-team league anymore. You're right. It's a lot more difficult uh, to do now than it used to be. I want to get a few more Calgary texts in here, Scotty, because as I expected, a lot of them are sounding off about the, the mediocrity they perceive in the Flames. This one in, uh, comes in says, I'm a Leafs fan first and a Flames fan second here. I live in Alberta. I have Flames season's tickets. I am always waiting for them to do nothing. They never do anything exciting. They trade average for average over and over. I'm still waiting for them to go and get Iggy his true first line center. And that really drives it home, right? Like how long has the wait for a legit elite number one center been in Calgary. That was a huge talking point when Jerome McGinley was playing there. Oh, of course it was. You're right about that. Maybe this conversation carries over in Calgary. Maybe it does not because we'll turn you over to local programming there on the eastern side of the Rockies. See if the big show picks up on it if, or if they go a different direction. You can find that on 960. On 650, we'll continue at least a part of this conversation. Some really good texts are coming in, and Dan Murphy will join myself and Jamie Dodd next on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Some really good texts coming in. Final hour of the program, Dan Murphy slated to join us here momentarily. It's Scott Rintoul and Jamie Dodd for our fourth consecutive time this week, and a fifth time comes your way tomorrow. Thanks for joining us as we turn AM into PM here on Sportsnet 650. We've talked a bunch about the video, Jamie. The mullet rollerblading yes. video. And someone texted in, and I'll be fair. I'll be honest. I hadn't considered this. Someone texted in when they saw the video. The video is simply a guy with a police escort for safety. That is also an excellent theory. Yep. It, it really is. is. Because the police car isn't chasing him. he's The police car is trailing the mullet-laden, jorts-wearing rollerblader at night down the middle of some sort of town or city street. Yes, exactly. It's not, uh, as you said, there's not a lot of urgency on the part of the police. So, But but then that raises a lot of other questions. Yes! Right? Like, it's, it's not as if there's, you know, this is part of a parade or, or a stunt or something. There's not a lot of fanfare happening around the scene here. So if that is true, why are the police giving this guy an escort? 
and where can this happen? Can you sign up for this? <laughs> is this a member of the police force who just has one of his buddies out? I don't see any film cameras. Like, I don't see this being a scene from a movie because you and I speculated no. that it was a Kenny Powers redux of some sort that we were actually watching in that six-second clip. But where and when can you make this happen? Because I guarantee you this. Many of our listeners would sign up to do it. I wonder if it's... I'm going to I'm going to kind of paint a hypothesis here, right? So this guy's out doing his thing on the rollerblades. The police officer sees him and kind of says, "Okay. This guy's not breaking any laws. So I'm not going to, you know, do what I could if he was doing that. But I'm going to keep an eye on this situation. Like it's just something strange is afoot here. I'm just going to keep an eye, see where it goes, and I'm going to trail him for that reason. I don't know because it's not, I mean, there's only one police car. It's not a full-on, you know, escort for this guy for whatever reason. I don't know what's going on, though. Balak has suggested in my ear that perhaps it's a charity thing. Hey, another great theory. And this is what I love about the video. Every time I watch the six-second clip, something different about it strikes me and the backstory to all of it. And, and my mind's been running on this all day. So thank so, you to the unsigned texter who gave us that theory. So is Balak's theory like the guy you like? you could sign up to pledge donations based on Maybe. how long he rollerblades or something. What's the charity well, it's, it's element like a walk. here? It's like you do like a walk and you, and you have like an escort <laughs> with you because you're, you're walking on the main street or something, but he's just deciding to raise awareness for mullets and jorts. Yeah, and rollerblading and how great rollerblading is. Or perhaps something slightly more important where you would actually donate to it. Maybe something <laughs> slightly more important than that. I helped start a parade once that got an inadvertent police escort along the way. Yeah, I got to go way back in time, Jamie, back to my television days at the infancy of my career. But I was covering the Grey Cup in Ottawa, Lions Argos, and we found out that week that Ottawa was not going to have a, the annual Grey Cup parade. And so in doing some of the stories that week and in enjoying myself that week, I was at some of the beer gardens, and I got talking to people around there, and it struck me that maybe we should have a Grey Cup parade. So I started pitching this to Ryderville and to the Schooners and a bunch of the different places, and a bunch of people, half inebriated in many cases, went, <laughs> you know what? You're right. And so... Just very grassroots effort. We were like, all right, let's show up. City Hall, that's where we're going to go. Can you guys bring your car? And can you guys bring your car? And can we just get people? And we'll march down the street, and we'll have our own, like, citizens of CFL football Grey Cup parade. And we ended up doing it. And by the time we were finished, about 70 people probably showed up on Saturday morning. By the time we got to go down to the market in Ottawa, for anybody who's ever been there, you kind of know the geography. A police car rolled up, lights on. I went, okay, I guess I guess the, the gig is up here. We've marched through two or three blocks in downtown Ottawa on a Saturday, and, and they're not having it. This wasn't exactly organized. Nope. They were like, we can see what you're doing. Police escort through the market. There Let's go. go. It was great. So maybe that's what's happening here, right? The, the policeman saw this guy and said, hey, I can get behind this. I, I can get behind this. Let's help this guy out a little bit here. Let's help keep him safe. Ryan from Chilliwack says, sounds like a scene from Super Troopers. Yep, could be that. Bit, I don't know. A little bit. It's great video. One way or another, I don't even care what the truth is at this point. The speculation to me is far more fascinating. Like, it makes you want to write a pilot for something based on <laughs> Yeah, explaining this guy's life. I don't know if I want to know the real reason now, to be honest, Scott. This is what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. Like, the truth might only be a disappointment at this point, right? Yeah, it's the kind of thing where we've we've spent so much time creating scenarios in our heads that, yeah, the truth probably doesn't live up to it. 
Guys, for crying out loud, take a closer look at the video. It's Bick Nazar coming from the bar in the 90s, says David <laughs> Richmond. Yeah, which personality on our station would that most likely be if it was a personality someone, from our station? I saw someone earlier suggest that it was uh, our boss, C-Mac, wearing a wig. Because, of course, you know, <laughs> yeah. C-Mac is not, is not rocking the mullet at this stage in his life. So he would need to have the wig. We yeah, don't have a lot of like, long-haired dudes who, who could pull off the mullet at the station. So I don't know. Halford might be the best choice. Yeah. Halford yep. might be the best choice to play the role, but hey, we can throw that out there to our listeners. They can chime in on that. 650-650, it's the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Dan Murphy slated to join us momentarily. I mean, if it was from Ottawa, if we were going to tie those two thoughts together from the story I told and the video that we've seen, Murph, that's where he went to school back in the day. Murph went to Ottawa, and I believe at one point Murph rocked something close to a mullet. Didn't, didn't many people, though, back in the day have something close to a mullet, right? That wasn't exactly out of the ordinary, is, is, is my understanding. I missed that era, so I, I never had the mullet. But I've seen the pictures from the 80s. I know what you guys were up to. I've never rocked a mullet, dude. Never rocked a mullet. I've never rocked a mullet because my hair grows big. Like, that to me would be – I probably even shouldn't suggest this, but that to me would be <laughs> like the stakes in a bet. If I lost a bet, okay, got to grow a mullet this many months – Go for it, and it would be a really difficult growing out process for me as we welcome Dan Murphy to this chaos right now. What's going on, Murph? How's the swell? Uh, didn't end up going, Scotty. Didn't make our way over to the Seattle, uh, and uh, so I'm not uh, pretending to surf like I usually do when I'm over there by you know riding the whitewash in one out of every ten waves. So <laughs> I didn't make it over, so I don't have to pretend like I'm a surfer, which I'm absolutely not. But here's the reason I knew I was going to lead with that question, because with you, I could just be talking about the gym. Murph, how's the swell? Uh, that also is very, very, very cool. <laughs> uh, the overall you know, composition of my body. But uh, I make it there. I make it there every once in a while. So that's, that's the important thing, Scott, right? It's when you get to uh, our age, especially my age, it's just a try, right? Make sure you give it a good effort. Did you check out the jorts-wearing, mullet-laden rollerblader with a police car in tow? I saw it this morning. I think Rex Chapman maybe had. Yes. So when I was scrolling through it, so I saw it, and I, I think I looked at it a couple times. And, um, what struck me was how fast he was going. It looked like it was like an icy street, and he was on actual skates at first. But I didn't really, uh, I just heard you guys analyzing. I didn't overanalyze it. My thought initially was just, this guy is banged up, might have been on the side of the road with some buddies. Maybe the cops pulled up, there's some open liquor, he chugged it or broke the bottle and took off. So that was kind of, that's the only place my mind went because I was just trying to put myself in that same scenario. Why would I be taking off from the cops? Maybe it was an open liquor and he's just drunk. Right. Who's the- what I, 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 didn't, I didn't really give it much more thought than that. Um, and the cop was just, you know, maybe going to stay back because of safety concerns. You don't want the guy wiping out right in front of you and chasing him and run over the guy. That's no good either. So... I didn't really overanalyze it because I think my mind just went, hey, there's a, here's a drunk guy on rollerblades in Melville Street wearing jorts and a mullet. Yeah, it was great. I mean, maybe he's just trying to get home from the bar, but who would do that, Mer? Uh, I probably had a few friends back in Abbotsford that could do that. <laughs> <laughs> he probably did do that. 
Yeah, or run home a long way. But that's a different story for a different time. Let, hey, better level of questioning. I will turn you over to Jamie Dodd now. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, Murph, you're saying you didn't overanalyze it. I mean, Scotty and I, we're in sports radio. We have to overanalyze it. This is what we do, right? Whether it's the Canucks and, and the Pedersen and Hughes contract situations or a video of a guy rollerblading down the street. It's, it's what we got to do. We got to pick it apart whenever we can. No question. I, I know, I, and I'd like to kind of know what was happening. I wish there was another camera to pick them up further down the street. Um, you know, so, and, and since it was such a short video, too, maybe maybe the guy filming, that's uh, his buddy, and he said, I'm going to get this cop to chase me, so shoot it. I don't know. Like, maybe it was pre-planned. Maybe it was set up. But um, certainly, I appreciate the guy's hair. I appreciate the guy's uh, fashion choice. Um, and, you know, as long as you can find, especially uh, the way things are going in the world right now, if you can provide a chuckle to people in the morning when they first wake up, a little breath of fresh air, I'm all for it. So if that's how you can get a couple segments in a radio show, it's probably uh, a lot more fun talking about that than some other things going on. Yeah, we'll take whatever we can get at this point on the calendar, Murph. And I, I do got to ask because we get the text every day here uh, to the show. You know, oh, my goodness. What? Why are Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes not signed? What's going on? Why are they letting it drag on? I mean, I know the pressure point is training camp and then really preseason in the beginning of the regular season. Do you like is there any chance that it gets settled before then? Or is it still going to be, you know, three, four weeks before we actually see pen put to paper here? I mean, I guess there's a chance, but, you know, as you guys have probably noted a million times, that is, especially for Quinn Hughes, there's no threat of an offer sheet for him. So time is his leverage, his main bit of leverage. And we saw it with, you know, Bull Horvath kind of, you know, didn't he just fly into uh, Penticken for camp when it was already going on? And I remember uh, Brock Besser's deal got done right before they were ready to drop the, drop the puck, I think, on the very first preseason game uh, that year. So. It's just, this is what it is. You, you take it as far as you can without trying to hurt the player. Because uh, you know, obviously guys like you know, Pedersen and Hughes, they want to get paid, but um, these are two young guys that probably don't want to miss a whole lot of time either. Right? So I think this is just a process of negotiations. Uh, it'd be nice if it got done before camp. Uh, so these guys would be there from the very get-go, but this is just this is just the way the business is. And uh, we've seen it uh, most recently with those players I just talked about, and so I'm not really surprised at all. Uh, that has dragged on this far. I mean, I, I think there was probably, you know, if the team, you know, the Patterson maybe was a little more, uh, you know, feet to the fire for the team because there was a threat of the offer sheet, but clearly uh, no one's done that yet in that player. So um, I just think we're going to see it drag on for uh, as long as it has to before both sides finally agree on the final, uh, final base of the contract. And when those pressure points do roll around, Murph, do you see either side gaining a big advantage in the leverage? Because I think obviously the temptation is always to say, well, the team needs to have them in the lineup, so they're going to really feel the pressure and maybe budge to get something done. But as you point out, you know, these are young competitive guys. They're not exactly going to be excited about missing out on some games to start the year either. Yeah, I'd say probably as time goes on, um, you know, Jim Benning's going to get a little antsy too, right? Because he's pushed a lot of chips uh, into the middle of the table on this season. Uh, and, you know, it's an 82-game season this year, but we saw what a poor start uh, did to them last year, and they never really caught up. Um, so you don't want to, especially when you're starting with a six-game road trip uh, to start the season, you're going to want to have everybody kind of uh, up at full speed. Um, so I think there probably is, once we start to get into camp and maybe into a preseason game if they're not signed, I think that's going to be a little bit more difficult for, for Jim and because Travis is going to want those players. 
But as you mentioned, these guys are both hockey nerds, you know, um, you, know, you see you know, Pedersen is always posting like Instagram of him, whatever, just at the gym or he's just he's always going skating. You know, these are guys that are constantly wanting to play and improve. And so I think that uh, as players, they're going to be saying to their representation, let's get it done. Uh, but these are <laughs> these are seasoned agents that have been through this a million times. So it's going to get done. I hope it doesn't cost some preseason games. It might cost them some uh, training camp. But, um, you know, it is going to get done. I believe it will get done before the season. In conversation with a voice you recognize, most likely Dan Murphy joining us here today on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Did you catch the Louis Erickson article? Uh, I saw the final points of it, and, you know, it, those things never bother me. It's it's absolutely true, right? I mean, my, anything he said, this wasn't a good situation for him. I mean, um, because uh, he was never going to live up to the contract that he signed. I mean, the market had soured on him, and for good reason, right? He's making a lot of dough for not many results, so... I'm sure he would have loved to have gone out of town earlier, but the, just the nature of that contract made it pretty much impossible to move. Uh, so I wasn't surprised by you know, anything he said, and I didn't want to harbor any ill will towards the player. Um, I think that's a cautionary tale for uh, the signing at the time. I think there was a lot of us in the market that said, I don't really like this signing at this, at this, at this point. Um, and certainly didn't work out. But I'm, I'm not going to hold that against Rui Erickson for saying those things because I think everything he said was probably 100% true. Right, from his perspective. And there will yeah. be some in the Canucks fan base that take umbrage with his thought that he should have had a better role in the lineup because I think we can all say if you're not invested in the situation to the degree that Louis Erickson is obviously invested in this situation, there is no way to argue that he didn't get a fair shake in Vancouver. No question he got a fair shake. You know, right from uh, starting with Willie D. I mean, I think he probably would have liked a chance to play more with the Twins instead of just in the power play. That didn't happen. Uh, clearly, he had lost a step. Um, you know, you saw Travis Green and heard him defend him, uh, you know, many times uh, throughout the, the three seasons of Travis as head coach, uh, always defending uh, Louis Erickson to the point where he got a nickname because of it. So uh, he did have his opportunities. He did get a chance to play up the lineup, right? I mean, he was on that line with uh, Pearson and Horvat a lot, uh, but the results weren't there. So it's tough to uh, give the guy more rope uh, and a bigger role when clearly the body of work in this market uh, was, was not very good. Now, there was always the theory they were going to send him to Utica, and that would be the tipping point. Now it would be to Abbotsford, of course, and to the – Dan Murth- Murphy Arena. I think that's what they've renamed it, right? Yeah, I don't. I don't think that's going to be a possibility. <laughs> Not yet. No. No. Okay, well, we'll no. see. Hey, maybe that's what the big unveiling will be later this month when they have training camp there. How much of an advantage, Murph, do you consider that the Canucks have relocated their franchise to the Lower Mainland? I think it's. I mean, I think it's a, a really smart move. I think it's a big step. Um, I think that uh, players like listen. Utica was a great market, right? They had great fan base. Uh, the building was full. Um, but if you're going to ask players uh, where they'd rather be, I think they'd rather be close to a major market like Vancouver and only in another way playing in Abbotsford. That's my guess. And I think you know, there's, I think that we can probably say that's right, considering some of the players they're able to sign uh, this offseason. Um, I also think uh, practically and logistically, it makes a lot of sense as well. Uh, the fact that you also have some of these uh, that you hope have some good prospects just down the road is going to, get you a buzz, it's going to get you more coverage, uh, and it's going to keep the conversations going about your prospects. Now, obviously, there's a lot of talk about prospects now as compared to 10 years ago. Like, the coverage is outstanding. Um, 
it's way better than it's ever been. But now you're going to actually have guys with eyes on them, not just on tape. And so I just think, uh, you know, overall, in many different ways, uh, it's it's a smart move. And that's nothing against Utica because apparently uh, from everyone you talk to, it was a great place to play if you were just there to play hockey. I think it's a great point, Murph, about, you know, the extra coverage they're going to get for their prospects. And I know I've really been impressed with just how much they've invested in the Abbotsford roster. They obviously want it to be a very competitive team right out of the gate. And I think that probably comes down to, you know, obviously the Canucks are an incredibly popular team here in the lower mainland. But from the long term, this is just another way to kind of build their brand, extend it out to Abbotsford and and get give a lot of families out there the opportunity to connect with the Canucks organization in a way they didn't have before. And building a winning team right out of the gate should go, should go a long way to accomplishing that. No question. Because let's remember whenever, when the flames were there and the abstract heat, I mean, the only time they sold out the building was when Manitoba came to town. Right. I mean, at the start, yep. it's people were more interested in Vancouver's prospects and Calgary's prospects. And that's, I mean, it's obvious, right? It's a, it's a Canucks market uh, in, in the lower mainland in British Columbia, most of it anyway. Um, so you'll have people that are excited to see some of these young guys. Now, you know, over the past, uh, you know, decade, there hasn't been a lot of, you know, high-end prospects that have come up through the Canucks. Like, I can remember forever when the Oilers were getting top pick after top pick at that uh, prospects tournament in Penticton. I mean, the only guy the Canucks had going there was Cody Hodgson. It was almost like a joke. Um, but now you're able to hopefully parade some of these good young players uh, into your farm system, let the, the fans get a taste of them, get, get, get to see them, get excited about them, and that's really going to build interest for the time when they actually do get up and get called up and play their first game. So um, I think there's uh, some good synergy to be had between having a far team in Abbotsford uh, with the big club only an hour away. Hey, Murph, we all know you're a massive golf fan as well, and Scotty and I have been talking about this all week. What do you make of everything that's unfolded, first of all, at the BMW Championship and then throughout the week between Bryson DeChambeau, the fans on the course, and now the PGA stepping in and getting involved as well? Oh, oh man, I mean, how much time do we have? I, I mean, I'll put it this way. <laughs> um, you know, I think Bryson is uh, great TV, for one. I mean, uh, watching the playoff last week, I don't know why, and I shouldn't say this, I'm going to I found myself cheering more for Bryson because it just, to me it looked like Patrick Cantley was in the dentist chair all day, right? And everyone seems happy. So, uh, but I, he's a very de- divisive player, obviously. Most people hate him, uh, some love him. Uh, he does bring a lot of it on himself, and I don't think he's a bad guy, but there's a, a, a little smugness to him, uh, you know, a weirdness to him that rubs some people the wrong way. Um, but I, I think, like, just listening to some of the guys yesterday, um, there were some great points. I mean, uh, Cantley talked about the player impact program and how these guys want to be front and center in social media to get some of that free money that the tour is giving out. And Bryson certainly is always going to be on that top 10 list. Uh, so that's part of the problem. Um, and I think Bryson brought something up yesterday that, that I think it, it is valid, perhaps not right now, but with gambling, right? Um, with gambling on these on these players and on these tournaments, uh, you don't want to have fans being able to, you know, uh, yell something at the wrong time and, and really have a big effect on a tournament and the outcome of the tournament. So I think uh, the tour maybe overstepped things a little bit, but I think this is one step in place that you have to start making when you think about uh, more than just Bryson uh, versus Brooksy. Um, so uh, I'm not sure how you police it, 
uh, at the start. It's going to be difficult, but I think it was a step, uh, perhaps uh, thinking bigger picture than just Bryson and Brooks at this point. It overstepped by a lot. It was the wrong way to go for the PGA Tour, and I didn't like what happened at the end of the BMW Championship, whether you're cheering for Bryson or not. I've said it a lot of times this week. The guy who yelled at him at the very end, which is what sent this over the edge, that guy deserved a punch in the mouth. He really did. He waited until a time where somebody's at a, at a low point. You should just let them cool off. He waited till he passed, but he could make sure he heard him not face-to-face. That's what he did, and I didn't like that from that sense. I'm not sure it could have been explained any better than it was by Rory McIlroy yesterday. Hey, the guy's brought a bunch of this on himself, but also I feel a little bit of empathy for him because he's not a bad dude. He's just a little bit different, and now people are trying to go down a road that they probably shouldn't. This has gone from something that was kind of fun into a different area, and if the PGA just left this alone and let the stars of the tour handle it, I think we'd be in a better spot, and I think there would be more reception from the fans. Yeah, but uh, yeah. First off, I mean, I think Rory's one of the top five interviews in probably all of sport at this point, maybe even higher than that in terms of how thoughtful he is and uh, how accessible he is, and always kind of saying what makes sense. Uh, but my guess is too that probably there was more talk about this behind the scenes, Scott. That this has been brewing for a while. This is something that has been uh, people have been and players, and maybe more than just Bryson, have been raising concerns about it. So I don't think this happened just because of what happened uh, Sunday at the, uh, the BMW. I think probably that this is brewing, brewing for a bit, and that was just kind of like the, the straw that broke the camel's back. So um, maybe I can research this a little bit more and ask a couple guys that I know, but I'm guessing that this has been something that didn't just happen because of what happened uh, after the 7-0 playoff. Maybe, but if you come out and you make it as specific as they did, you're just asking for more trouble. At least that's my read on it Murph and I think the difficult part that we've talked about is that the PGA has long been this upper crust I mean golf in general has been looked at really rich sport elite sport behave a certain way but the the tour knows that to grow it has to bring in more of the masses and more people who didn't necessarily play golf but kind of like it and have a little more fun and they're finding it difficult to strike that balance right now aren't they? Well, they are. I mean, you've got the one tournament in Phoenix, which is you know so far uh, over the line that players know exactly what they're getting into. And some guys don't enjoy it, and some guys love it. But it's more like a one-off, right? And I think that um, if the, the players would have their druthers, they would prefer it not be like that uh, every week. Um, because it's just, I mean, there can be an unfair, uh, I mean, I guess a disadvantage for the best players to do because they have more people watching them, more noise. Uh, you know, more drunks yelling stupid things. So um, it is a tough balance to strike. I don't know how they are going to fix this one particular problem, but, you know, I'm not nearly as offended uh, as the tour doing this as I am by the format of the final tournament, the tour championship. That's what I think they have to fix before they have to worry about Brooksy versus Bryson. Am I more likely to find you heckling somebody from a gallery or practicing rollerblading in jorts in the next few months? Both. How about down the cart path? Heckling while in Georgia. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Hey, man, now that you're not in Tofino, maybe I can talk to a few folks. you got some connections. Maybe we can get that police escort for you in North Van. I already have the mullet, so I don't have to worry about that. Thanks, buddy. All right, boys. Take care. See you, Murph. That's Dan Murphy joining us here. Joe's laughing. Scotty, a punch in the face. I've had a number of people say that the week, and I have explained it many times that it's a figurative term, yeah. not a literal one. But 
everybody knows what I'm talking about when I say that. Right, Jamie? That there yeah. are times and places. There's, a, I thought Tim McAuliffe described it really well. There's this self-governance as a fan that you're supposed to have, and there's things that you do, and there's moments that you do it, and then there's times where you just need to back off a little bit, and that's sort of the guy guide to me. If you do something that would generally result in you getting a punch in the face from somebody, you probably shouldn't do it. It's the you, you can say it almost the like, come on, man, test, right? Because you're out sometimes, right, in a public environment and somebody does not somebody, you know, but somebody does something. And the reaction from people around him is, hey, come on, man. Right. And everyone knows exactly what you mean. Like, OK, you crossed the line there. You got to scale it back a little bit. Right. That's what you're talking about. It was a come on, man moment. You know, you shouldn't be doing that. You know, that's not cool. We're not going to freak out about it. We're not going to literally punch you in the face. But come on, come on, be smarter. Dylan in Richmond. Gentlemen, I am happy to say I am rocking a mullet as we speak, and I look good. <laughs> I am very glad to hear it, Dylan. That is fantastic. As am I. And our listeners have provided a lot of conversation points, some of which we will get into next. Some involve our national soccer team. Others involve our national women's program and what might become of a domestic league. We'll hit it next right here as we wrap up the final hour of Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. That is former national team member Dwayne De Rosario. He was on the Fan 590 this morning ahead of the Canada-Honduras match tonight. That kicks off 14 matches of World Cup qualifying for Canada. That's for next year's World Cup. First game in Toronto tonight. It will be broadcast on Sportsnet. Jamie, that's something our listeners had certainly been yep. clamoring for, whether it was Sportsnet, TSN, CBC. They didn't care. They just wanted it on a conventional platform so they could watch the game without without having to go to a streaming service. Well, you've got your wish, Sportsman. Yep. You asked, we delivered. It's happening. It's extremely, extremely exciting. I'm fired up, not just as a Sportsnet employee, but also just as a fan, as a soccer fan in this country, that it's going to be more accessible for people. I think it's going to really help kind of inject it even more into the conversation than it already is. I'm, I can't wait. So take this on then, Jamie, and any of our listeners as well. 650-650 is your Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. You can get it any time throughout the course of the program. John from Vancouver, very thoughtful, very loyal listener here, texts this in today. Like it or not, the airwaves in this country are federally regulated. Being granted national broadcaster status should include responsibilities like, I don't know, broadcasting national team games. The CONCACAF president was right. A big part of the problem Growing the game here lies at the feet of the national broadcasters like you guys. If a national team game was only available through some random small fry pay TV service in Brazil, they'd riot and rightly so. Now, Media Pro is a pretty large entity globally, yes. but I understand John's point and the perspective of, hey, this isn't what we consider big time. This is a streaming service. That's new to a lot of people. There are a lot of people in the main sports demographic who don't stream, and they look for their sports programming on conventional platforms like Sportsnet or TSN or CBC. So I agree with a part of your point, John, because I personally, I want to see our Canadian national team on one of those channels, and I'm I'm glad that it's on Sportsnet. As somebody who works for this station, I'm proud today to say, great, 13 of the 14 games are going to be on this network. I think that's awesome. The question that comes out of it, though, Jamie, is, okay, to what end? How many national teams? Right. That's the big question for me is because, yeah, it's easy to say, oh, the, so the Canadian men's national team, the Canadian women's national soccer teams, yeah, of course they should have a home. And obviously you're right. 
There's a lot of national teams in a lot of different sports in Canada, right? To the point where if you were mandated, if you mandated us and TSN to show all of them, it would crowd out literally all other programming, more or less, right? So there has to be some threshold for popularity before you go down this road. And I mean, that's what happened here in the first place, right? Is that whatever Canada soccer, whatever arrangement Canada soccer was looking for, TSN and Sportsnet, didn't think it made sense for them, so they decided to pass on it. Now things have changed, and it does make sense to get involved. I understand why it was frustrating in the first place, but you can't just say, well, it's a national team. You have to show it. There's a lot of national teams at question. Right, and I do think that's a bigger debate because it's really easy when it's a sport you care about to say, well, of course that should be on. Rugby, yep, yep. put every single rugby game on. And to John's point, and the thing that I would argue with you there, Jamie, is – there are five TSN channels. There are five Sportsnet channels. Yeah, that's fair. And, that's fair. and as a viewer, I share the concerns of many of our listeners who happen to be viewers are going, well, how come the same thing's on all four or five channels at the same time? If if you have this ability to put more things on, why don't you just do it? We know what the answer to that is. Production costs. It's as simple yes. as that. Relative to viewership numbers, advertising dollars, it's a business equation, and that's why it operates that way. From a very um, rudimentary point of view, like just as a viewer and just having those stations which we all pay for, you go, well, yeah, put put that on. Like you've got all these other platforms, but as we all know, this is a business decision, and that's why this one got made as well. Like this one got made yep. because Sportsnet decided, Rogers decided, well, there does seem to be enough interest out there, and we can probably attract enough advertising to that, knowing that we can get a certain amount of eyeballs. Let's do it. Yeah, that's the thing here is this the, the reason Sportsnet, you know, we, we had a similar conversation with uh, around a women's domestic league, right? Is, okay, there's the right thing to do and the good thing to do, and then there's the business decision, right? And look, Sportsnet is not doing this out of the goodness of their heart, right? They're doing it because they think a lot of people are going to watch and they're going to make money by selling the advertising for their games. That's That's just the case. And again, when these rights were up initially... TSN, Sportsnet didn't think that was going to be the case. They didn't think the arrangement was going to make sense for them. Look, I agree. I would like to see our national broadcasters, our big you know, nationwide sports broadcasters invest more in some of these sports, but you do have to recognize their businesses at the end of the day as well. Jason the Killer Goalie texts in, I think it should depend on the importance of the event. That's in the eye of the beholder, quite frankly, Jason, because in certain sports, events are big. But if you don't pay attention to those sports, is it a big event to you? And again, this is where the conversation seems like we're running around in circles because there are plenty of sports in this country, as you mentioned already, Jamie, that don't get the recognition. They don't get national or even regional airtime that I might have a personal investment in. You might have a personal investment. Yep. In. Look at U Sports, for example. Look at U Sports. I would like to see more U Sports broadcast. Does the general fan out there care? Yeah, is that moving the needle for people? Unfortunately, probably not. And then that gets into the other argument. Well, well, if if we did a better job presenting it, right? And if if there was more media attention, that would get people on board. It's not a one-way thing though. It is not a one-way street. Is that part of it? Yes. But I think this is a great example because what happened here is there was a legitimate groundswell of public opinion saying, hey, I really want to watch these games on TV, and now they're on TV. That doesn't always exist for things like U-Sports, right? And that's what makes big broadcasting companies hesitant to get involved. Right, and again, a really complicated conversation with no clear answer on any no. of it when it comes to a lot of the sports that aren't of the top 
tier in this country, at least what has been considered top tier to this point in time, Jamie, because I also grew up in an era where streaming or not, you weren't getting this stuff. And now the one thing you can at least say, and we said this before with the national men's team, which I'm really happy to say is going to be available to way more people across this country without having to throw in an additional few bucks than it was a month ago. I'm really happy about that. But at least it was available. I mean, you come from a time, I come from a time where you're not seeing the game. Like, you're just not seeing the game. Nobody's broadcasting it right now. So find a way to get your coverage. Hopefully the highlights show has it. Maybe the news has it that night. Or at least read the recap tomorrow because that's the only way you're going to get it. Or you're looking at the box score tomorrow, right, in the paper and trying to puzzle out what happened. That you know, Depending on the level of event you're talking about, that could be what you're doing. I think there is a spinoff conversation about this when it comes to professional women's sports, which we've had some conversation about in the last month. Christine Sinclair put it out there after winning the gold medal. Let's get a domestic league in Canada for professional women's soccer. We've heard the calls for professional women's hockey to be on television more and for there to be a domestic, if not North American league that has viable NHL support. I know there's some still disagreement in the women's hockey community about what the best business model is going forward, but we brought this up earlier and a lot of our listeners had thoughtful responses that we should kick around here. Jamie, this is from Rick from Cowichan. I love watching the women play in the world championships and the Olympic. We all agree it would be beneficial to women's hockey if there was some form of top league. However, however, Everyone says there needs to be such a league. Who's going to fund it? Who's going to invest the capital? It has to be a sustainable business model or it will never get started. It represents a significant financial risk. It will require one or a few benefactors, which is why there are plenty of women within the pro game, and specifically those, Jamie, in the PWHPA, one of which was on our program earlier today, Rebecca Johnston, and we didn't really get into this aspect of it with her, who have said, we're not going to play in the current league because we're holding out for something better. And what they believe is something better is substantial NHL support, partnerships in NHL cities for professional women's teams to exist in. And to the texter's point, yes, it is. there is financial risk, and there does have to be an initial investment. And, yeah, it's risky, right? But the, lots of businesses get started with an element of risk, right? Usually when you're ponying up money to get something off, of ground, off the ground, you understand there is an element of risk. And we have seen very, very recently like some pretty promising success stories for grassroots national leagues in Canada, right? Like the Canadian Elite Basketball League, the Canadian Premier League. Both of those, despite early in their histories having to deal with the entire COVID situation, have done a very good job of, up, of as upstart leagues of you know, putting on impressive, enjoyable seasons for their fans. And they look like they're going to have a lot of room to grow in the future. So it can absolutely happen. No one's saying it's going to be as big as the NHL overnight. But, yeah, there's risk. There's also a ton of upside. And that's why an organization like the NHL, I think, would be very, very wise to get involved. Yeah, they have to invest a little bit of money up front. But the potential payoff down the road, I think, is significant. Loyal listener, Patty12, hits us up at the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox today saying this, Canadian cities should have a pro team, women's pro team with same ownership. Pardon me. Every Saturday on Hockey Day in Canada, the women's game is on before the NHL. Make it a once-a-week event like football. Then as it grows, add a Wednesday night game. I think there's something there. I don't yep. think that's wrong. Yeah, I think there's absolutely something there, right? Using the might of the NHL and the pull it has in these Canadian markets to help push the marketing effort for a potential women's league would go a long way. And and again, I mean, 
you look at the WNBA, right? The NBA had to invest a ton of money in that league and spend a lot of time promoting it. It took a little time to pay off, but it is paying off now, right? That league is getting a ton of ratings and a ton of interest that it wasn't getting, you know, even five or 10 years ago. Again, it's an investment. Yes, of course, you're not going to be raking in the money overnight. That's not how it works for any new startup sport league. But the proof is there that if you invest and if you do it the right way, it can pay off in the long run. Text coming in, majority of Canadians couldn't name three players on the women's national team. Well, if we're going to the majority of Canadians, I would hazard a guess the majority of Canadians could not name three players on this men's national side for soccer. No, of course not. Of course not. Not even close. No. Now, the majority of our listeners, sure. But the majority of our listeners could name three women's players as well. So does that mean that, like, is that the burden of proof? I mean, I think you would be shocked. Yeah, yeah. it would shock me even if you went to, like, what percent of Canadians can name five NHL players. I think you would be shocked at how Mm. relatively low that is. I'm not saying it wouldn't be a majority, but people think it's, oh, 100% of Canadians. No, that's not the case. We think it is because we're involved in sports, but it's not the case. The majority could. The majority, the majority could. could do, the could majority do the challenge. Could. I'm just, just saying. No, no, I know. I'm just saying the percentage would be lower than a lot of people in our audience think it would be. A lot of good texts coming in today. This one comes in. We were going to break this news before the end of the hour. Not that we're the ones breaking it, but to our listeners and have a quick conversation about it. There are a couple of kibbles and bits, if you will, to get in at the end of the program today that bear just a little bit of mention, perhaps a quick conversation. Seahawks fans out there that were hoping, crossing their fingers, maybe sending up a thought to the football gods that K.J. Wright would come back to Seattle. They are disappointed, Jamie. He is heading to the Raiders. Yeah, that's uh, it's a tough one for Seattle. He K.J. Wright was really, really good for them last year. He was great for them for the entire time he was there, but he was a good player last year. And I understand, you know, Seattle is is pretty picky about which players they choose to extend into their 30s like that and KJ Wright didn't make the cut but he's going to help the Raiders and that's one of my big questions about the Seahawks defense I know it's not the sexiest position right kind of off-ball linebacker but again he was excellent he was he was really good for them it's going to be tough for them to replace him that one comes in the defense has Gus Bradley's prints all over it now in Vegas do you think the Raiders can climb out of the basement in defensive rankings with all their changes does KJ still have it does Gus I don't know if Gus Bradley has lost it as a defensive coordinator. Obviously, things haven't gone as well since he left Seattle. Jamie, K.J. Wright, that's the big question. I mean, he can be an effective player. He's not what he once was in the prime of his career. That Raiders defense has plenty of questions, and they exist in a really tough division to answer them. Yes, they do. <laughs> Having to play Patrick Mahomes and uh, Justin Herbert as well, that's that's no fun for any defense. Yeah, no he's not going to go in there. KJ Wright is not going to go in there and, you know, transform what the Raiders defense looks like. That's not the kind of player he is at this stage of his career. That's not the position he plays, but he'll be an effective piece. He'll help them. But I don't know. I mean, if I had to bet one way or another, can they get out of the defensive basement again, partly because of the division they're playing in, I would lean towards. No, it's a big task. Certainly for the Raiders. Well, we're talking about football. Calgary Stampeders might have Bo Levi Mitchell. Who knows? They're going to figure it out this weekend. He was back at practice today. He took most of his reps with the second stringers. Jamie Calgary might get a little help in the quarterback department. BC is off this weekend. Traditional bye for the BC Lions on Labor Day as they don't have that traditional rival like the 
Elks and the Stamps going head-to-head, but maybe Bo Levi Mitchell enters the equation. I'd be a little surprised. Jake Mayer has been playing extremely well in Mitchell's absence and feels like they're rushing him back just a little here. Yeah, it doesn't feel like there's that pressure to get him back because the replacement has stepped up and been really impressive, especially in that game last week that they played. So, I mean, realistically, why rush him back? I know it's a condensed schedule. They're only playing the 14 games, so you're always feeling the pressure from that perspective. But I I would be a little surprised if we see him as well. You don't have to go home, but you can't play here if we were going to do a little spinoff of the semi-sonic tune from back in the day. Logan Mayu. Draft pick of Montreal, very controversial pick for really good reasons was there a controversy, and that's not going away anytime soon. Can't go to training camp with the Habs. Doesn't seem like much of a price to pay, despite the fact he asked out. Tactic, we can all we can all talk about that if we yeah. want, but the time has come and gone. He was drafted by Montreal. Okay, well, we're, we're not going to have him come play at training camp this year. He's not going to play in the OHL, at least not to start the season. The OHL has suspended Logan Mayu indefinitely for violating the league's expectation of appropriate conduct while he was playing in Sweden last year. He's allowed to apply for reinstatement on January 1st. And that's going to be very interesting to see what happens if and when he does apply for reinstatement on January 1st. Because this is, man, the, the Montreal Canadiens have put themselves in a really difficult position here. In a really And really, they did it to themselves by making the draft pick in the first place and You know, the fact that they're already having to, right, they have to take the step of not inviting him to training camp, and then now, you know, his future and where he can play is up in the air. It it just goes to show you how kind of short-sighted it was for the Habs to even make the pick in the first place. And I'm not surprised that, you know, the OHL is saying, "Uh uh-uh, this isn't going to fly in our league, at least to start. These are different scandals with regards to sexual conduct, Jamie, but we are all waiting to find out about Chicago. Like, when are we going to get this report? When's it going to be made public? We don't have that answer yet, but also should get this in before the end of the show. Ben Pope reporting in Chicago that Jay Blunk, who's the former Blackhawks executive VP, Pete Hassan, former VP of marketing, Maria Sotera, former VP of HR, and James Gary, former skills coach, are no longer listed on the Blackhawks staff directory. And another reporter, Scott Powers, is reporting all four have left the organization how much of is it is it tied to that investigation? I don't know, but here's the speculation. Ben Pope goes on to say, James Gary and Maria Sotera are both tied to the Bradley Aldrich scandal. Gary allegedly convinced the Blackhawks player in 2010 that the assault was his own fault. Sotera allegedly told Michigan police in 2013 they'd have to subpoena the Hawks to get information on Aldrich. So that, with that extra context, it's hard not to look at this as a result of that scandal, right? And, and yes. potentially as something coming out of the investigation there and the Blackhawks feeling they have to make a move. The question then becomes, is that it? Are, are these the people who are going to be held accountable and made to pay a price by leaving the organization? Or are there more shoes to drop as the investigation continues? Yeah, and when are we going to find out? This is now become incumbent on Chicago as an organization to put that report out there as opposed to the National Hockey League, which has kind of said, hey, they're doing the investigation. That's what we've directed them to do. It's under their watch. And Chicago has pledged that this is going to be made public. 
I understand the cynicism, though, Jamie, because you know what I still haven't seen? I still haven't seen the investigation results of the Bill Peters investigation. And I know that's from a league perspective as opposed to an organization's perspective. But the NHL was supposed to have looked into that. And we're coming up on two years since Bill Peters has been fired. And we haven't heard anything about it. Yeah, that's two years. And I mean... You know, it's not as if, and I, I realize an investigation is a complex process, but like Akeem Alou, who's at the center of that story, he's been out there. He's been available. He's been accessible. He's been, he's been talking about this issue, right? So I don't know why on what planet it's it's taken the NHL two years almost to do this, but you're right. It's a great point. It's easy to say we're going to do a full investigation, but what does that investigation actually look like? Is it timely? Is it thorough? Is it appropriate? You never know until you actually see it, and we're still waiting in the Bill Peters case. Fair or not, here's the perception. Hey, we're going to do an investigation. We're going to do an investigation. We'll get the results to you. Is anybody paying any attention anymore? Is yep. anybody talking about this? No? Okay, the investigation's over, and uh, let's move on. Like, that's the perception yep. of it right now, and that's not a good look for the National Hockey League. I hope he gets brought up again. What did you find? And basically, what are you going to do as a league? Anything? Something? That's what we should be yeah. waiting for. Well, and, and I think especially the NHL has a responsibility to make those findings public, right? Yes. Okay, what what did your investigation reveal, right? It took a long time. Presumably you were working on it hard. What what came of it? Yeah, I don't I don't want to hear just a, you know, a a one-sentence summary from the NHL about the investigation. I want a legitimate in-depth look at it. Scott Rentoul, Jamie Dodd, we're going to have to give up the mics for now. Excellent show again. Jamie, thank you very much for your contribution. You will be back alongside me tomorrow. Roger Shergill, excellent job with our guest list today. He was the producer du jour. And Greg Ballack, big ups back at Mission Control. We will hand things over to Bick and the Boss. That comes your way next right here on your home of Canucks Hockey, Sportsnet 650.